This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. This is Major. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of the show known as The Takeout. Marking, acknowledging, and kind of scratching our heads that this show represents one full year from my dining room. When we began the transition a year ago to the restrictions, the cautions, the precautions that we were taking because of COVID-19. I don't think anyone attached to this show, certainly not me, imagined we would still be doing this a year from now. And here we are. And we'll be here for a good while longer because we're going to be on the cautious side of the reopening spectrum. And one of the reasons is we spend a lot of time talking to experts. And we have an incredibly well-informed, brilliant expert to help us walk through not only where we are as a nation at this particular moment with COVID-19, but how we should think from a scientific point of view about the next four weeks, maybe the six weeks, and maybe the summertime. Our guest, Dr. Michael Osterholm of the University of Minneapolis, University of Minnesota, forgive me, the direct title is he's director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research at the University of Minnesota. Doctor, forgive me for butchering your name and title. I apologize. Uh, in the uh, in in the in the presence of greatness, I sometimes get tongue tied. It's great to have you with us. Well, thank you very much. I'm not sure the greatness was here, but uh, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you. So, for the benefit of the audience, uh, let them know a little bit about your career and why you are a world recognized expert in the area of epidemiology. Well, maybe the first thing I would say is if you just live long enough, you can start to be considered somewhat of an expert, having been in this business for 45 years. Uh, I think specifically around this topic, um, you know, I've been concerned about global pandemics for the better part of several decades and have studied them extensively. So I think that that uh, may have played some role in all of this in terms of being concerned about this. In 2017, I wrote a book, Deadliest Enemies, Our War Against Killer Germs, in which uh, I lay out the challenges of a global pandemic, in that case, particularly influenza, but any kind of a pandemic that uh, would do what this is doing. And so um, it was my too. one year ago today, it was the last time I was on an airplane uh, and have been pretty much sequestered here. I'm this guy that has the same gas uh, tank full of gas uh, three months later, uh, but I'm not surprised that it's still here a year later. And I think that's what uh, for some people I think has been uh, a revelation that this could last this long. In April of last year, you were not alone, but you were conspicuous uh, in saying, Whatever it is in April of 2010, 2020, it's going to be much worse. You, I believe I read one of quote saying, we're in the foothills and we're going to have some mountains and it's going to be really, really dreadful na- nationwide. Wherever it is now, it's going to spread. And there were some who at the time thought you were kind of an alarmist or maybe hyping things. You proved to be correct, whether you wanted it or not. In some media circles, you received the name Dr. Doom, but you were right. You were absolutely right about what was coming at us as a nation. Where do you think we are right now, and do you have deep concerns that we are acting and behaving, or about to act and behave, more optimistically and more open than we should? Well, you know, let me uh, just say I have one disclosure I need to make to the audience here. Uh, The fact, as I just said, I've been studying pandemics for all these years, but that disclosure is I probably know less about that virus today than I did six months ago. And I think we have to have a great deal of humility as humans 
in terms of what we do know and don't know and what this virus might do. Uh, you know, for the last uh, year, people have continued to ask me, where are we at in this pandemic? And, you know, I've kind of likened it to a baseball game. And I've, you know, re as most recently said, we're probably in the, you know, bottom of the third, top of the fourth uh, inning. And over the past few weeks, if not several months, when people ask me that same question, I say, I think we're in the first two minutes of the first quarter. And they say, wait a minute, that's, we're talking about baseball. And I said, no, when the variants arrived, it's a whole new ball game. And I think that what we have to understand today is a year into this, uh, and really it's 14 months into this, if you go back to some of us who were following this even in December in Wuhan, uh, what's changed is the last three and a half months when the variants arose. These are these viruses that uh, basically have the characteristics of one, more transmission, substantially more transmission than the previous ones. Two, they cause more serious disease. Or three, another bucket is they actually can evade the protection afforded by vaccines and or natural infection, the immunity you get from having been infected. And so I have to be honest with you today and say that, you know, we are, I think for the moment, uh, in the eye of a hurricane with regard to the good news of vaccines coming, but the big challenge with this new variant uh, that has arrived here from the Europe. Uh, but beyond that, it's all going to be about the variants versus the vaccine, and that will determine where we're going to be next year, the year after, and the year after that. So uh, B117 is the variant you just referenced, if I'm correct in that. That's right. Okay. Is it, in fact, 40 percent to 70 percent more infectious? Is that what the data currently reveal? The data do support that. And those are data that we've seen from uh, Europe, where they still are largely in partial to full lockdowns and have been since Christmas just to try to control the transmission of the virus in Europe. It's been remarkable. Uh, I will say that uh, I've also had some firsthand experience here. Uh, we now have an outbreak that's emerging in Minnesota that started several weeks ago in youth sports. And uh, the dynamic transmission of this virus here in our state has been something I've never seen in my 45 year career in infectious diseases. And it surely is bearing out exactly as they was described in what happened in Europe. Uh, so if you look at what else is happening where we're seeing this virus quickly emerge, the B117 uh, in states like Florida, California, Georgia, or even yesterday, Houston uh, City Hill officials, health officials, put out a warning about the very rapid spread there as they've seen it literally and virtually explode in its presence in the sewage system samples they're taking. They have This has been a wonderfully accurate uh, uh, alert system. They can actually test for it in the uh, sewage and have found uh, a very rapid escalation of B117 in the Houston area. I think that's happening in many cities and communities around the country right now. And for our audience's benefit, uh, we are recording this on the afternoon of March 10th. So this will be airing on the Friday of March 12th. So if there are specific days or yesterday's mentioned, just keep that in context. And is B117 not only more infectious, but causes more serious health reactions? It absolutely does. Uh, there has been a series of studies that have come forward again from Europe where they've been able to demonstrate that it is uh, causing more serious illness, more hospitalizations, more serious infections, and more deaths. And uh, this is concerning in that uh, uh, we are in this country uh, really making some inroads in vaccinating our older population, but we still have uh, 20 million Americans 65 years of age and older that have not received a drop of vaccine yet. Uh, and so we could expect that we could see a particularly hard hit population there if this uh, continues to spread through our communities as we think it will. In addition, uh, in the European experience, they've actually seen the increased serious illness in even younger individuals right through middle ages. So that a population that with the previous viruses weren't as likely to cause as much serious illness, hospitalizations and deaths, this one does. And so that is, again, is another challenge. How should that influence our public discussion and decision making about school reopening? Well, it, this is a very critical and I think pivotal moment in this whole discussion. I understand the need, the desire, the urge, and in some cases, just the requirement to get our schools open again. And uh, I'm, uh, as a 
a grandfather of five uh, children uh, grandchildren. I understand that very much, the importance of that. And I would have up until this point uh, largely supported really reopening the K through eight uh, area in terms of schools because there the data have supported up until now that there really is very little serious illness, uh, that transmission is minimized, and that uh, you can really do that safely. But as was demonstrated in Europe uh, in November, December, and January, they literally had to close schools down to control transmission because kids were really one of the uh, highest infected populations in all the age groups. And they did serve as important uh, transmitters of the virus in the community as well as getting ill themselves. Well, we're seeing that now here uh, in Minnesota. I just mentioned the outbreak that we have going on right now. Uh, the focus of transmission is younger kids. Uh, then the spillover is to mom and dad, aunts and uncles, grandpa and grandmas. And so I think we're in a whole new ball game right now in terms of trying to understand about school openings. Uh, and I, I, I know that people have made commitments. Our elected officials have made commitments to get these schools opened up. I hope they take a pause and just at least look at these data that are showing that this may not be the time to open schools. And it's not anything they did wrong from before. If if we hadn't had B117, I'd be sitting here saying open up K through eight at least. Uh, now I think we have to take a pause and really relook at this very seriously. And we have to take a pause right now. Back for segment two with our special guest, Dr. Michael Osterholm of the University of Minnesota. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. We'll see you in a second. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Dr. Michael Osterholm is our special guest. He is with the University of Minnesota. He is a director there of the Center for Infectious Disease Research. Doctor, you were talking, and I wanted to give you a moment to go more deeply into this experience that's going on in Minnesota right now. You said there is something troublesome about children playing in, uh, I guess, organized sports. What are you seeing and what does that suggest about how we should think about organized sports? Because among the things I'm seeing, certainly at the high school level, is an eagerness to get back into competitive sports. Well, we all are eager to have our students, our family members, friends, neighbors, all back in organized sports. Uh, this is part of the life that we enjoyed so very much before this pandemic, and it seems like we're cheating uh, these uh, kids out of this opportunity now in their lives. The problem we have is, is that in the outbreak, at least we're seeing here in Minnesota right now, is that the uh, contact that these kids are having, and, and even though it may be limited, and it's not with regard to one sport, we've seen it in multiple sports, is that one community's infection problem suddenly becomes another community's. And then that community has contact with somebody else and now becomes their community. And the rate at which this is spreading between communities is remarkable. Uh, and uh, today we forget just how many times uh, multiple communities come together uh, for sporting events. So that uh, that has been a huge focus in the area of transmission. Uh, once it's in a community, it spreads on its own. It's in the schools, it's in the rec centers, it's in uh, you know any kind of, of social area so that uh, it's the big challenge is what makes it go from town to town, community to community, county to county. And right now, the main driver of that has been uh, organized sports. 
And one thing we've learned, doctor, throughout all this is once the virus is present and begins to spread, it's mathematical after that, correct? It is, but I think what makes this one uh, more dangerous, and I use that word cautiously, but with intent, and that is, that, again, the level of transmission has been remarkable. Uh, we're seeing, uh, you know, very highly efficient transmission in which what would have been in the past, maybe transmission kind of activity. You know, just because you're around someone who is infected didn't mean that you would get infected, uh, depending on how much of the air you breathe from them, how much virus they were putting out. Uh, you know, it's a dose kind of issue. And what we're seeing now, people are having even less contact than you might expect would result in transmission is. And so this is, ex again, exactly, I, I keep coming back to this, but it, it's, I think it's important to understand this because it provides a reference or a framework, is the fact this is exactly what they saw in Europe. Nothing we're seeing here appears to be any different, nor would we have expected that with this virus. So from that perspective, we need to really carefully study what did it take in Europe to bring this virus under control and what does that mean for what we're going to do here in the United States? And doctor, as you well know, it's in the headlines all across the country. Governors are lifting restrictions. They are reopening restaurants. They are reopening movie theaters. They are lifting in some states, in some cases, not everywhere, mask mandates. How does all of that strike you based on all the things we've just discussed? You know, I think you might say it's innocent. Uh, I, I, I think as we get more information out there, it's hard to describe that as the what's being done. But it's what is happening is people are so excited by seeing these case numbers come down from what were, you know, the highs of 300,000 new cases a year to a level that ironically, last July was considered a house on fire moment. Uh, you know, when we hit 70,000 cases a day in July uh, around the country, you know, it was a major crisis. Your network led with it every night, showing how right. hospitals were overrun. Today, we're at 70,000 cases a day, and it's as if, okay, we're okay. I think the other thing that, though, has happened here is, is that when you look at it that way, you can say, well, it's on its way down. It's not a big problem. And what we're saying is just like we had other peaks. Uh, you know, I just remind people in April, we got as high as 32,000 cases a day. The house was on fire. Could it be so bad? And then by Memorial Day, we got down to about 20,000 cases. Again, we were feeling much better. Then it got to 70,000 cases in July, another peak. It came back down again uh, in September, and we were down to about 24 to 26,000 cases a day. Okay, now we're fine. Then it peaked out around just before Thanksgiving at 200,000 cases a day, but it came back down to about 140,000 cases a day. Then it peaked out again at 300,000 cases a day in early January. We seem to forget the shifting baselines each time. The highs get higher and the lows get higher. And we're now at a very high low. So already we have a problem there. The vaccines are coming. That could surely drive that low down much more quickly. The problem is between the time now that we're going to see uh, uh, an additional vaccine amount available to really start vaccinating a much larger segment of our, of our population beyond the 12% we vaccinated now, uh, we're going to see this B117 surge occur. So, you know, I don't know how high it's going to get again. Uh, it surely could rival what we've seen already. But I do know that we're going to see uh, from this very quiet, low-level transmission period in terms of what people see in terms of cases is not going to be what it's going to be in four to six weeks. And I hear very cautiously and methodically in your voice, Dr. That our excitement may be misplaced. You don't want to be a downer. You don't want to tell people that you don't have a right to fatigue. I hear that in your voice. I hear that in your words. But I also hear, wow, if we're not careful, things could get worse and we could be back to those very bad days of 100,000 cases, 150,000 cases. And we all know what flows from high numbers like that hospitalization and death. You know, Major, I think what's really important here is to understand what it means of where we're at in the history of this virus. We are within weeks to months of getting most of this country vaccinated. Wouldn't you want 
not to be the person who dies two weeks before they're supposed to get their dose of vaccine. That, I think, is the message we have to get across. What we're trying to do right now is help people get to what could be a very, very, very different world if we get to the point of getting by this uh, peak of, of, uh, of this virus and getting to the summer where we're going to have ample supplies of vaccine. So that's the message. We're not asking you to do this for another year. We're not asking you to do this forever. We're asking you as a part of our community, save yourself until you can get your vaccine. That will be more difficult, though, when governors say everything's okay, won't it? You know, governors have to deal with reality. I get that. And the reality is today, if you don't reopen, you know, you stand a risk of losing your job almost. I understand that. But you also have to be uh, a brave individual. And I just had the opportunity uh, to appear in a program juxtaposed to uh, uh, Governor Murphy from New Jersey. And I thought his comments were very, very well placed in terms of now is not the time to let up. Now is the time to look at what we can do, but we also have to understand the reality of what these new variants might bring. And so this is where it's gonna be important to communicate to the public. People are tired, people are broke, people are mentally depleted. We get all of that, but what would that all mean is if you give it up now, and you get infected, you're seriously ill and you die. You know, you've come this far. We just got to get to the vaccines. We've got to get by this surge of the B117 cases. And, and that message is just so important to have people here. And the next stage of our conversation with uh, Dr. Michael Osterholm will be about how it is as a nation and as communities, we get past, in his words, this surge. We're going to talk a little bit more about B117, the pace of vaccinations. Is there still something wrong with distribution schemes in this country? And what do we do with this question that's on the front page of the New York Times on March 10th, which is differing rules in states and localities about who qualifies first for a vaccine with underlying health conditions? All that and more on the takeout. I'm Major Garrett. Dr. Michael Osterholm is our special guest. Stay tuned for segment three in just a second. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Dr. Michael Osterholm is our special guest. Doctor, uh, this is not relevant in any respect to the truthfulness or the scientific grounding of everything that you have said to us and what you will say to us. But it's important, I think you would acknowledge, in this atmosphere, this political atmosphere where politics and medicine have collided throughout the coronavirus experience in our country. You were an advisor to President Biden's transition team, but in your history in this line of work, you've also worked for significant Republicans, have you not? And if so, please let my audience know who they were. Actually, I've had roles in the last five presidential administrations. So, and I've worked for two Republican governors, two Democratic governors, and one independent governor here in Minnesota. So, you know, my job has always been just to call balls and strikes, to be a, a soldier in the public health army and help however I could. Uh, during the previous administration, I served for a year and a half as a science envoy for the State Department, going around the world, dealing with the issues of trying to prepare for a pandemic. So, uh, you know, I'm agnostic on the politics. I'm absolute on the science. And that's where my message comes from. And viruses don't care about red or blue states, do they? They not only don't care about red and blue states, but they will take advantage of activities that red or blue states might put forward as the way to proceed. You know, and again, you have to look at these viruses almost like gravity. You may not like it. You may not want to deal with it, but you are going to deal with it because gravity can't be easily dismissed. These viruses are the same way. You know, they're not going to do what we want them to do. They're going to do what they do, and they do very well. Our job is to figure out what they do and to beat them at their own game. In this case, things like vaccinations or things like not exposing yourself to the virus. So uh, I think at this point, our messages are apolitical. 
They are all about trying to help save and protect people from serious illness and death. And even if you don't like that message because of the other things that's happened to in your life, whether you've lost a job, whether you've lost a business, whether your mental health is severely de depleted at this point, those are all real and legitimate issues. And we need to deal with those also. But the bottom line is our message is really going to come back to you as just like the meteorologist calling the five, category five hurricane that's about to hit shore. That's what our job is to do the same. So uh, there'll be many people listening to this uh, on Sirius XM channel 124, POTUS channel uh, on more than 70 radio stations around this great country, including WCCO in Minneapolis and on podcast platforms. So here's a real world question for you, doctor. Uh, if there's a parent listening and they have young children who want to play sports, do you have any particular advice you would give to them based on what we were talked about in segment two? First of all, there'll be tremendous social pressure for you to let your children play. It'll come from within your family, and it'll come from outside your family, and I understand that. What we are really good at in this country of doing is pumping the brakes after we wrap the car around the tree. We do that time and time again when it's too late. And so all I can say is that to parents watching and wondering what could happen with this virus with their kids, please note what's happening in your community. If you're starting to hear about outbreaks of uh, B117 or this, this uh, COVID-19 illness in kids, then at that point, that's the time to take a break. That's the time to say, you know, for now, we're going to hold them out. Now, I know how precious athletics are in competition and and, you know, I worry sometimes that far too many. And, of and, and togetherness. Yeah, for the exactly. kids. Oh, I agree. And, and, and I understand also that some of the challenges we have are the parents themselves are the highest motivating factor in why the sport's occurring. It's almost as if they're they're playing the game for their child. But the point of it is we are going to see these illnesses. And it's not just about protecting the children. Well, our big concern is, yes, they're going to get sick. Uh, they won't necessarily get as sick at the frequency that uh, older adults will, mom and dad, grandpa and grandma. But the risk is that they then spill the virus over into those populations. And we've seen this time and time again. And so, you know, what hockey game, what basketball game, what uh, wrestling match is more important than your grandfather's life? That, I think, is what we have to present to people as the reality choices that we have. So, Doctor, I'm going to give you some statistics. Uh, again, this is on March 10th. Um, total vaccinations available in this country, 128 million, administered 95 million. That's about a 75%. That's 33 million that have been undelivered. Is that a good number, 75%? Are you comfortable with that? Or are we still missing something in terms of getting the supply and distribution well aligned? Well, you know, at this point, when you look at those numbers, you have to be a little bit careful in the fact that it's not like vaccine is just sitting out. Uh, there is some accommodation made to make sure you have enough vaccine for second doses so that some of that is being held uh, temporarily. But in many cases, uh, that vaccine is moving through on a daily basis quite frequently. For example, in our state, more than 96% of the vaccine is in someone's arm within one week of it arriving here. So that I think in many locations that's happening. Where the challenge is, and this is where some of the vaccine is getting held up, is in some of our communities, particularly in the BIPOC community, uh, there is a, a bigger challenge in getting the vaccine to these individuals because they don't have the same healthcare systems. They don't have the same access. They don't have computers necessarily to help a 76-year-old black woman in the inner city of a of a one of our communities get online. And so in that case, uh, the challenge of getting vaccine to these people is very real. And uh, that can, in some cases, slow up the numbers of vaccine doses being distributed. You want to have them, you want to get them into the arms of these people. It just doesn't happen overnight. The current percentage of the U.S. population age 65 and older vaccinated is 31.1%. Is that a good number? It's not. And uh, I think at this point, that's fully vaccinated. There are additionally yes. 20 plus percent that are have at least one dose, which I believe is by itself a very important indicator, too, because we have clear and compelling data today that one dose of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines 
actually at three to four weeks provide quite good protection. And if I understand it, your recommendation to the Biden administration is to shift to one dose as many as you can and not hold the second dose back to get as many people vaccinated at least once. Is that not correct? Exactly. Well before this uh, surge uh, really takes off, but our time, we're losing time there. And then again, second doses would occur as quickly as possible after the surge. And remember, we're going to have a lot more vaccine in April and May. That's something I give the administration great credit for and how they're working to make that happen. So none of us are going to sit here and say, don't get your second dose. But whether you get it now or you get it in, in April uh, or May and get more people protected, you know, Major, I've said time and time again, this is going to be about hard choices. Imagine this is you now sitting across from a table. You have two doses of vaccine, one in each hand. Your mom and dad or your grandpa and grandma are sitting on the other side of the table. And you sit there and say, well, I've got data that says that, you know, one dose does provide quite good protection uh, for the time period that we'd be concerned about. But the recommendations say I have to give both doses to one of you and none to the other. And by the way, if the other person doesn't get a vaccine right now and we see this big increase in cases, you have a real chance of getting infected and having serious illness. So what do you do? Do you give two doses to one of them and none to the other? Or do you give one dose to each? And I think once we're confronted with real world choices like that, it becomes abundantly clear, I wanna protect as many people as I can for the short term. And we know that 80% of the deaths in this country have occurred in people over age 65. So let's get as many of those people as quickly as possible with one dose and we'll come back in April, May, we'll give everybody their second dose to make sure they have it. I personally have had the same situation. I'm over age 65. I've had one dose. I've deferred my second dose so that I hope that some grandfather or grandmother can get it and they too be protected as the surge comes at us. Uh, I'm going to set you up with a question that I want you to take on when we come back for segment four. I'll state the question now, then we'll go to break, but I want to give you a moment to think about it and let, let the audience stew over it while we get to break. So this week, as we're speaking on March 10th, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services just released new guidelines mere hours ago about nursing homes, among the guidelines saying even if people are not fully vaccinated, it's okay for them to visit residents indoors. Outdoor visitations are preferred, these government guidelines say, but they also say it's okay to be inside at nursing homes, even if not everyone is vaccinated. We'll ask Dr. Michael Osterholm if that's a good idea on the other side of this break. I'm Major Garrett. You're listening to, watching, and thoroughly enjoying The Takeout. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. By this time, you know our guest and you know the question because you were listening in segment three and this is segment four. So, Dr. Michael Osterholm, please give us your take on these new guidelines about nursing home visits. Well, first of all, we have to acknowledge one of the most painful situations we've experienced during this entire pandemic has been the inability to allow family to be near their loved ones in long-term care or, for that matter, even in hospitals. Um, you know, I have to just say that uh, in talking to healthcare workers who have had to live through this pandemic, time and time again, some of the most, what I would say, battle-hardened intensivists, the doctors who had perform intensive care medicine or the nurses who are there too, will tell you that even though they've done uh, tours in, in Afghanistan or in Pakistan or Iraq, wherever, the hardest thing they've had to do is hold an iPad up to a patient's face who was dying so that their family members outside could see them. It's, it's horrible. So we all want to get our long-term care facilities and hospitals back in a place where family can be with family. Now we understand that the outbreaks that have occurred, particularly in long-term care facilities, have been a real challenge. And in many cases, the workers who uh, are working there have been part of that outbreak and we need to get them vaccinated. And I still remain challenged where we see in some areas, uh, large numbers of those workers not yet vaccinated. But I think in terms of the family, uh, we've believed all along that if you have a vaccinated resident and you have a vaccinated family member, there should be no reason to keep them apart indoors or outdoors. Now I would like to see both vaccinated before one comes into the building 
uh, and spends a lot of time with the other. But I'm even in a case of long-term care, if the individual who is vaccinated is the resident and uh, you're coming to see them, uh, just as we say right now, uh, grandparents can go and see their grandkids and their families if they haven't been at high risk of getting exposed. And I think we should make that happen. Uh, and so I, I, again, would like to see everyone vaccinated, but I also wanna see people together. So I think it's long overdue uh, relative to our vaccine availability to figure out how to get people back together again, not just in long-term care, but also in hospitals. Uh, that the, the death by loneliness in many cases has been almost every bit as tragic as the death by the virus. No doubt, no doubt. Uh, how about the CDC guidelines this week that if uh, people are vaccinated uh, in their houses, it's okay, no masks, no social distancing? Absolutely convinced that's the right thing. I think you're gonna see those guidelines even uh, loosening up more as we emphasize what you can do with being vaccinated. You know, if there was ever incentive to get vaccinated, this is it now because we can loosen up. We can, in fact, make it a, a relatively safe environment. And one of the things that uh, I think was a very positive aspect of the CDC recommendations was that they talked very specifically about this, uh, that they would continue to update the guidelines frequently as more information became available, as more feedback became available. One of the things I, I found in, interesting about the guidelines is uh, from my colleagues and from the community, I had a large voice come forward saying these guidelines remain far, far too restrictive. The other side said, oh, these guidelines are terribly, terribly too loose. It's too dangerous. And I've kind of come to believe that these are the Goldilocks guidelines. If you're in the middle, that's probably the best place to be. And I think that's where they are right now, but they need to continue to draw out what are the things we can do and not do safely uh, you know, with, with regard to vaccination. Doctor, it's always perilous for me to do any kind of mathematics in any live broadcast, but uh, I want to ask you a question about the way we should think about, conceptualize the mathematics of vaccines as we see the graphics as we do on a nightly basis on the CBS Evening News, CBS This Morning, or anywhere else. Should we think about those 29.2 million Americans who have had cases now, some of them have died, of course, 528,000, but those who are living, who had cases of COVID-19, should we think of them and count them intellectually and conceptually in the body of those who have been more or less vaccinated? Or is that not really a way we should think about this? No, actually, this is a very important consideration. Uh, let me just say that in order to extend the vaccine even further so that more people would have availability during the this very important uh, I'd say pre-surge phase of B117, our group put out a publication in which we laid out four different areas where we could extend the vaccine. One is just targeting those who are 65 years of age and older as a priority to get it. One was the deferred dose. But the, the third one was actually giving a single dose to those who have previously been infected and not two doses. We do know that vaccine-related immunity is actually superior to having had the infection and what you develop in terms of immune response. But we also now have the data that says, and you don't need two doses though, illness and one dose by itself is enough to give you very high levels of protection. And then the, the fourth area, just a note, is that we also said, why are we still using the same dosage for the Moderna vaccine? Uh, the 100 microgram dose, which is the one that is currently being used, was also tested along with the 50 microgram dose, and we got very similar results. Uh, it's just that they licensed or approved, I should say, through the emergency use authorization, the 100 microgram dose. We could, I think, cut the Moderna vaccine in half right now and get twice as many doses. And that was actually proposed even by the Operation Warp Speed officials last summer. So, so yes, if you've been infected, get one dose and you have high level protection. Uh, and uh, that would surely extend our vaccine substantially more. So you said earlier in the program, uh, we're at this eye of a hurricane, which means it could be calm, but then it could be much worse. But if we behaviorally and through our methods and vaccine, we get past this, I want to give you in the minute 30 we have left for our radio audience, an optimistic appraisal of what the good outcomes could look like and when? Is that midsummer to late summer? Is that fall? Give us your optimistic view of an America that has behaviorally handled this particular 
surge issue well and what we look like and what we can live like? If we handle it well and did not expose ourselves to the virus through the activities we talked about, and we continued to see the vaccinations ramp up, uh, we could have some very, very bright days ahead of us. I think we could be talking about a time when we start doing those activities that a year ago were normal today don't happen. But I also have two caveats to that. One is we still have a large number of people in this country who are vaccine hesitant to absolutely refuse to take the vaccine. And if we see 30, 35% of people not willing to get the vaccine, we could still see ongoing transmission challenges well through the next year. Just this past uh, week, you saw data come out that supported that one third of all the servicemen who are offered a vaccine dose in our country refused it. Uh, so we have a lot of work to do that way. So that's one caveat. We got to get people vaccinated. The second one is these other variants we've talked about. You know, the B117 affects us by being more transmissible and by causing more serious illness but it doesn't evade the immune protection of the vaccines or natural infection. That's the good news, but there are variants that do. And so what we're gonna constantly be watching is are we gonna be under attack from those variants? Are we gonna see what's happened in Brazil happen here? And so that's the unknown, that's the wild card. And uh, at this point, I'm going to focus on, let's getting us back to a new normal and doing everything we can to make certain that we get the low and middle income countries vaccinated so we don't see more of these variants spin out. But if we do, we're gonna to have to acknowledge we could be into a whole new chapter with this virus. And that's what time is gonna tell us. That is the voice of Dr. Michael Osterholm, our special guest. Uh, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you for our radio audience. We have to say farewell, but for those of you on podcast platforms and CBSN, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. This has been The Takeout. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Dr. Michael Osterholm is our special guest. He is the Director, Center for Infectious Disease Research at the University of Minnesota. Doctor, um, one thing I didn't get to ask you in the main show uh, before we get to the lighter fun and games portion of the Takeout Outtake Especial, what is happening in South America that is causing you concern in terms of COVID-19 variants? Well, the experience really started with a city by the name of Manaus, which is in the northwestern part of, the, of the Brazil. It's at the headwaters of the Amazon River. Uh, it's a city of 2.5 million people that last uh, uh, spring and early summer had a major outbreak of COVID-19, such that they estimated that up to 75% of the population had been infected, thousands and thousands of deaths. There were actually papers published over the course of the summer suggesting they had hit herd immunity, meaning that they had so many people infected that a virus couldn't sustain itself in that population in, a, in any way to cause a large-scale transmission. Well, then all of a sudden, this new variant, which we call P1, came along. This one had the mutation that allowed it to, in part, escape the immune protection of the vaccine and previous natural infection. And guess what? Manaus lit up all over again. And at this point, the, it suggests that it may have had, they may have had as many cases in the second hit that they just are really just recovering from now. Well, then we've seen this particular variant spread throughout Brazil, Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, all are seeing very, very high levels of transmission, uh, a very significant increased occurrence of severe illness and deaths. And again, it appears that the virus actually is infecting people who have previously been infected and recovered 
and the immunity that they had was not sufficient to protect them against this virus. Um, there's surely much more information we need about this, but this is kind of our worst nightmare that in fact we could see recurrent outbreaks of these new variants if in fact they keep finding ways to evade our immune protection. Now the data we have from Brazil suggests that getting infected a second time, you surely can be more severely ill and die, but also many people did have milder illnesses. But the bottom line message is it means that it's one time and you're not out, one vaccination and you're not out. And that's what we really need to understand. And so I think the message that everyone has to understand here, one, have deep humility. This virus is gonna to continue to teach us things for months to come, and we have to be prepared to learn them. Number two, have contingency plans. We already need now to be talking about second and third generation vaccines. We were very excited by the success of this first generation of vaccines that are performing wonderfully well uh, in the absence of a variant like P1, the Brazilian variant. But um, we also now realize because of that, we need to talk about how can we improve the vaccines we have? Can we make them so that they attack several different locations on the virus uh, and, and make it that such that even if they have a mutation to one of those areas that the vaccine is made for, we still have protection. And for the audience's benefit, doctor, is that work going on everywhere at NIH and with all these companies churning and burning the midnight oil on these variants and other things about the vaccines? That work is going on as it relates to our current vaccines and looking about might we have a slightly altered vaccine, meaning that uh, it's kind of like how we do with influenza each year, where we change out the strain a little bit. But I think the real effort we need right now is to imagine uh, of the world as if today was a rotary telephone sitting on the side wall of your house and uh, had a, a, a dial, a cycle dial kind of pad versus that of an iPhone. You know, we have a lot of evolution to do in these vaccines right now that, that we have to look at. How can we go from that version of communication to the one we have today? Well, how can we go from the vaccines that we have today to ones that are much, much more sophisticated and capable of giving us even better protection than what we get today? And for those in the audience wondering what the good doctor is talking about, rotary phone, Google it, kids. There are lots of images. <laughs> Uh, doctor, uh, we have a, uh, you're a man of science uh, and a man of caution, and you choose your words carefully. Here you can uh, loosen up just ever so slightly because I have three uh, threshold questions on culture, pop culture usually. Um, so uh, in whatever order you wish to answer them, uh, the most influential book in your life, all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies, and if you're going to enjoy some music, what kind of music are you most likely to issue listen to by artist or genre? Well... With books, uh, I have to say that there's any number of them, but uh, I would have to say without a doubt, it's a collection of Sherlock Holmes. And I say that, that's how I really got into the world of medical detective work. Uh, you know, I, I found the crossover between the two to be uh, wonderful in that regard. Uh, Movie-wise, uh, you know, I, uh, there's a number of movies that I guess I would put up there uh, but uh, anything that Humphrey Bogart was in is a movie I could see time and time and time again. Uh, uh, I think that's that's remarkable. One of my favorite <clears throat> movies of his is The Big Sleep, which is uh, a kind of an up and down, crazy, circuitous script that really doesn't hold together well, but it's still a brilliant and delightfully enjoyable movie. And, you know, I would actually have to say that would be right up there with mine, too. Exactly. <laughs> it was. <laughs> What's your favorite music? Uh, you know, I... Uh, I like a number of different types of music. I think for me, music is often associated with a time and a place. Mm -hmm. And it's like having your own mental diary in your head. Mm -hmm. um, and so from that perspective, I, I'm very fortunate to have liked a lot of music. I have an unfortunate music experience right now, though, that I can't seem to shake. And that is, uh, you may recall, you are almost old enough to remember the 1960s music scene and the group, The Fifth Dimension. Oh, yes, and, and absolutely. The fifth, They're all over my iPhone. Yes, there you indeed. go. The Fifth Dimension had a song, The Dawning of the Age of Aquarius, mm -hmm. Let the Sunshine In. Yes. And I keep hearing in my head all the time, this is the dawning of the age of the variants. And that has been a challenge. 
So I would love to somehow erase that song and start over again. Understood. Dr. Michael Ulsterholm, it's been such a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for your expertise. Thank you for uh, answering as many different questions as we had and offering a perspective on our times and Thank what you. we should think about and plan for in the near, near term. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. I'm Major Garrett. This has been The Takeout. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Divya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.